Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. This is Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Never say never, but never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. Everybody love everybody. We will call it the golden standard, and this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th national championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. What you could do is, is you could have a barbecue on that it's head. A good time, you know what I mean? On Sports Radio 960 AM, double. USBT. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. And now your host, Sean Styers. Hello. Welcome to Wednesday, the Wednesday edition of the show. And may the 4th be with you. There, I, you know, I got it out of the way. <laughs> Wednesday, May 4th, you know, the day Star Wars is pretty much, I guess, what, co-opted as its own. You know, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan myself. You know how to tell a diehard uh, or, or, you know, a diehard Star Wars fan from a casual or non-Star Wars fan? I just say Star Wars. Not like, what is it, Star Wars Episode Four or whatever it is, you know, any of that stuff. You know, I'll say, you know, like if I, if I get in a conversation with someone who is a Star Wars fan, well, what do you like? Well, I like, you know, Star Wars, the original. They're like, oh, Episode Four, what, whatever. They just called it Star Wars. You know, I saw the original Star Wars in 1977. Then I saw The Empire Strikes Back, not Episode 5. And then I saw Return of the Jedi, not Episode 6, you know, and on and on and on. And then, of course, they, you know, they turned it back around, you know, because they started with Episode 4 to begin with. But the originals, you know, they, they were pretty good, even a little cheesy at times, but they were they were good fun. And uh, But I saw it, you know, saw... Those are, are, are what I saw because, you know, teenagers in the 70s and 80s actually went to movie theaters because we didn't have phones to watch movies on. We didn't stream. You know, it's like, well, eh, get out of my cantina now, Boba Fett, and just be the old man uh, screaming at the kids. But anyway, May the 4th. So here it is. Cinco de Mayo, of course, coming up tomorrow. But, uh, you know, we're into the early days of the official uh, NFL and college football off seasons. You know, we've got the NBA playoffs going on. We've got some baseball going on, but we're getting the, you know, the slow trickle of NFL announcements now in the wake of last week's draft. I mean, the NFL's got it set up. All the build up to the draft and then this week and next week we'll get some schedule announcements. The international games announced today and it's going to be Tom Brady in Tampa Bay playing the Seattle Seahawks and whoever their quarterback is November 13th. That's going to be in Munich. It'll be the first ever NFL game in Germany. And Tom Brady, including the United States, will be the first quarterback, first player to play uh, NFL football game in four different countries. You got your United States, of course, where everybody plays. You got He's played in Mexico, he's played in England, and now it'll be Germany as well. Uh, So they also announced three more London games 
today. New Orleans Saints against the Minnesota Vikings. That'll be October 2nd. Green Bay Packers, New York Giants, October 9th, my favorite day of the year. And the Jacksonville Jaguars playing the Denver Broncos October 30th. That one will be at Wembley Stadium. The others in a couple of different stadiums, but all in London. All four of those European games, Germany and the three London-England games, will be 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. So, you know, they get I, – I, I think the NFL loves it because, one, they get overseas for those games, and, two, they get a fourth window on Sunday. They get a fourth window to fill. You've got 9.30 a.m., then you've got 1 p.m., and then you've got, you know, your 4 to 4.30 kickoffs. And then, of course, you've got your primetime game on NBC that night. So uh, you get an extra window that's going to be nationally televised. And so, you know, so I think uh, the NFL loves it in addition to the fact that they get to market their game in, uh, you know, in other countries. And this is going to be the first one in Germany. So that'll be they'll be turning up for that. The NFL, you know, to really uh, crank out the marketing efforts over there in Germany. And, uh, you know, they were on NFL Network publicizing a couple of the uh, German veterans of the National Football League, including, I uh, can't think of his first name, Vollmer, Patriots lineman. But, uh, you know, Alexander Ehrensberger here at Notre Dame, a kid from Germany. So, uh, you know, they're they're uh, continuing to, uh, to work that and work up the marketing, get it going overseas. That's why they play those games. And you've got the game in Mexico as well, Arizona versus San Francisco. It'll be November 21st in Mexico City as, uh, you know, the – they added the 17th game last year, so I've got less problems with these international games than maybe I used to when you were taking home games away you know, from these teams when they had to play them overseas. But now you've got a 17th game, and I think we're going to continue to see more international games with that extra game, you know, international or you know, playing in some other places as well. So we get a taste of the international games today. The NFL is going to announce its full schedule one week from Tomorrow, so you'll find out exactly when you know your favorite team is playing who when uh, the 2022 season kicks off this fall. So that's the NFL news. Big news in college football right now is uh, well, it's not good. The transfer portal, and more specifically, how name, image, and likeness (NIL) has impacted the transfer portal in the short amount of time that it's been around, because. NIL's been around less than a year now, and, you know, so far it's kind of been like Cousin Eddie cruising to your front curb in his old RV, you know, worn out the welcome pretty quickly. That's kind of what NIL seems like it's been, unless you're a player, of course, but for everyone else, you know, it's really shaking things up, and what's shaken up the college football world over the past few days is all this stuff that's been going on with the pit wide receiver, Pittsburgh Panthers wide receiver Jordan Addison, he was just a sophomore last year, but Addison won the Bolitnikoff Award as the nation's best wide receiver, and he had nearly 1,600 yards and 17 touchdown catches taken in the ball from Heisman Trophy finalist Kenny Pickett. And um, it's been a little bit more than four – like, think about this. It's been a little bit more than four months since Pitt played its last game. They played Michigan State – in the Peach Bowl back at the end of December. Basically, four months have gone by, and Addison never entered his name in the transfer portal. He seemed fully content to stay at Pittsburgh. 
for what likely would be his final year in college before going to the NFL a year from now. But not so fast. Out of nowhere, these reports pop up that USC was trying to lure Addison to Los Angeles. And the biggest draw, a reported $3 million bucks in NIL payment. $3 million bucks to get a wide receiver, a college wide receiver, to, to swap teams. And not just any wide receiver, of course, According to the award, the Bolitnikoff Award, the best wide receiver in college football last year. Again, I mean, he put up some big numbers, 1,600 yards, 17 touchdowns. But remember now, all this started last week, and Addison still was not even in the transfer portal when all this came up. And so USC is reportedly offering NIL deals to a guy they have no business talking with because it is improper and against every NCAA rule you can think of to talk to someone about transferring if they're not in the transfer portal. It, you know, it doesn't seem like that should be that hard to figure out. But now supposedly it wasn't USC head coach Lincoln Riley or any of his USC staff who, you know, had the contact with Addison. It was a third party, someone Addison knows who was connected to USC. But guess what? That's also an NCAA violation for third parties to make contact and, and, and try to bring someone, you know, to their schools. And now, USC, they're the one that we've seen the dollar amount for, but Alabama has, you know, reportedly been in on this as well. So, you know, all this talk comes up. Addison's not in the transfer portal as all this stuff is <clears throat> allegedly going on. But he's not in the portal. But then Sunday was the deadline to enter the transfer portal. And guess what? Addison's now in the transfer portal. He got his name in. He, you know, he applied by the deadline over the weekend. So now this guy is in the transfer portal. But again, all these reports and all this talk pops up before he's ever even in the portal. And then you've got Pat Narduzzi, the Pittsburgh head coach, calling Lincoln Riley and giving him the whatnot. And I can only imagine how those conversations went, you know. And I would be pretty livid, too, if I'm a head coach and I've got a guy who has not entered the transfer portal and there's all this talk about this other school, not just any school, you know, the biggest name on the West Coast. Trying to lure him out there. Now, we can talk about their success and all that kind of stuff. I know, but USC is still the biggest name on the West Coast in terms of college football. It's in Los Angeles and and all that. And so I, I can imagine what Pat Narduzzi was saying because that guy is not Mr. Warm and Fuzzy to begin with. And then you're trying to, you know, poach his players, offering them money, get them out of Pittsburgh. And, you know, and let's face it, Pittsburgh versus Los Angeles. Now, Los Angeles – a little bit bigger than I'd like, but still, it's Los Angeles, Hollywood, you know, all the whole thing. The weather is obviously much better than Pittsburgh, and there's not all those, you know, hills, mountains, whatever that you got to roll through. But college football world up in arms over all this, and like cats and dogs living together, all this even has Notre Dame and Michigan men agreeing with each other. Hard to believe. But uh, so a couple of different guys. First, Desmond Howard on ESPN's College Game Day special the other day, their NFL draft special. Here is Desmond Howard sounding off on what he thinks of all this. Well, Laura, I was just talking to a friend of mine before I came out here for the draft, and I said, I'm just not a fan of the trajectory of college football right now. I do not like where it's headed. Now, I've been pounding the table for guys 
to get NIL, NIL money because I yes. think they deserve it. You need to get paid for your name, image, and likeness. There's no doubt about that. But when you just place it in our lap with no real rules, no real regulations, and say, here, have at it, then it becomes the wild, wild west. So it's a double-edged sword. They should get paid. They should be able to transfer. Right. Coaches do it all the time. Right. We have coaches who leave teams when they can still make a, the playoff and they leave teams. They jump right. ship. So right. if coaches should, can do it, players should be able to do it too. But it needs to be some sort of rules or regulations behind it. And to me, that has been the biggest problem. You hate to see this for the fans more than anything. Yeah. yeah got like so there's Desmond Howard. Do you like that little shot that he had there at Brian Kelly? He just couldn't resist. You know, talking about how if coaches whose teams are in the college football playoff contention, if they're able to leave, players should get theirs as well and uh, you know I can't disagree with that and I hate to say I told you so but we remember you know I told you I watched Star Wars remember when Han Solo asked Luke well why didn't you say so before and Luke said I did say so before well me too Luke I thought NIL was something that needed to happen for college football players as well and I say players not student athlete because that's an NCAA propaganda term Basically, nobody's offering Jordan Addison three million bucks or, you know, the Miami basketball player over a million bucks to stay in Coral Gables because they're, you know, of what they're doing in math or English class or any other class that they happen to be taking. You know, that money's there because of their playing ability, not their student ability. And their playing ability is why they were, were recruited in the first place. But when name, image, and likeness was being floated, my biggest concern was how it was going to be used and, in reality, abused as a means of recruiting. That was my biggest concern, this whole recruiting aspect of thing. Now, this has gone to a completely different level because here we are now. We're not even a year later, and we're basically at crisis levels with all of this stuff. And it's just amazing the short amount of time it has taken to get here. And at Notre Dame, great, I told you, that we had both Notre Dame and Michigan men essentially agreeing on this whole thing. And Aaron Taylor posted a video to his uh, Twitter account, and he sounded off on this as well. Hey, college football. It's time to wake the fudge up. Empires don't stay empires forever. They crumble from within and almost always after great runs of dominance. We're at a tipping point, y'all. What's taking place right now behind the scenes in the NIL world is despicable. And it's dangerous and it's irresponsible. And this ain't about the kids getting theirs. Student athletes have always deserved a bigger piece of the pie. This is about the adults in the room. It's always been about the adults in the room, which is how we got the sham notion of amateurism in the first damn place. This is about the institutions and the donor bases and the development departments and the extremely successful men and women that make up that population. But this win by any means necessary mentality is a poison. It's termites. And those termites are eroding the fabric and foundation of what makes this sport the greatest on the planet. There's an old saying that no matter how far down the wrong road you've gone, turn around. Unfortunately for us, I think the genie's out of the bottle and we can't get this toothpaste back in the tube, but we can pull the damn car over, catch our breath, 
orient ourselves and figure out a responsible way for everybody to win that is in the best interest of our sport. Because what we're doing now ain't, and we better figure that out. There you go, Aaron Taylor, Notre Dame great, going into the College Football Hall of Fame. Empires crumble, termites eroding the fabric and foundation of the sport, and figure out a responsible way for everyone in the best interests of the sport. I mean, there's nothing that he said that wasn't true. There's nothing Desmond Howard said that wasn't true, or at least that I don't agree with. But here's the problem. The adults in the room Aaron Taylor was talking about, They've been too busy lining their own pockets to worry about anything or anyone else. That's why college football is where it is right now. Mark Emmert is finally going to step down as NCAA president sometime by next year. But he fought as hard as he could against bringing NIL to college athletes. And in the meantime, he was busy signing March Madness TV contracts that brought the NCAA more than $770 million a year. ESPN just paid $3 billion for the rights to carry SEC football. That's just the SEC package. $3 million, $3 billion, excuse me. They're also paying over $5 billion to televise the college football playoff. And Fox is in the middle of a $2.6 billion contract with the Big Ten alone. And the Big Ten is just about to renegotiate their contract. And that revenue is going to go up. You know, all this conference realignment that keeps happening, it's not about what's best for the student-athletes, the coaches, or the teams. It's not about giving teams better chances to actually win and compete for championships, Texas and Oklahoma. They're not going to have a better chance to win championships in the SEC than the Big 12. Maryland's teams aren't any better off in the Big 10 than they were in the ACC. But all those schools are getting bigger, fatter paychecks from those TV rights deals, and that's what it's all about. Again, all those adults in the room Aaron Taylor was talking about, they've all sat and fiddled and counted their paychecks while the actual sports burned to the ground. And now when it comes to the transfer portal, one possible solution, at least a Band-Aid short-term, because I don't know what they're going to do about NIL, because as Aaron Taylor was saying, you you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't reel it back in. With the transfer portal, one possible solution, or, you know, at least, you know, again, a Band-Aid, is to limit transfers to smaller windows in the calendar year rather than leaving it open year-round like it is now because they went from prohibiting players from going from one school to the, to the next. You know, coaches could block a transfer if they wanted. All these different restrictions. Then you had to sit out for a year all this different stuff, but now they've got a one-time transfer deal you know, where you can transfer play right away as long as uh, it's your first transfer. But college football coaches are going to propose a pair of different windows where players could enter their names in the portal and, you know, limit it to that so that it's not year-round. You know, because, again, Jordan Addison sat there for four months from the end of December until just last weekend – where he was not in the portal. Now, all of a sudden, he's in the portal with with all this money dangling out there to get him to USC. But one of these windows would be like the end of the season and run through the early signing day in December, and the other would be like April 15th through May 1st. That's what I saw has kind of been floated out there that college football football coaches are going to propose. Now, that would be for football. I think you'd probably have to have different windows for the other sports because obviously – they start and stop at different times of the year. The you know the drafts are at different kind of year. All that has impact 
on all this stuff. You know, every sport essentially has its own calendar. But I think that that is, that is probably the best solution, where you have two windows. You can enter your name at this time, and then you can enter your name at this time. And that is it. It's not just a wide open, you can do it anytime you want. Then you have the rug pulled out from under you as soon as, you know, spring practice is over or whatever. But, uh, again, I think that is the best answer in the short term. It would at least slow things down a little bit. But there's a long, long way to go to uh, to figure all of this out. And it is just flat out a mess right now. We're going to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll talk some more NFL draft uh, specific to the Indianapolis Colts. We'll also get uh, some thoughts on uh, what's going on potentially with Jack Cohn, what's potentially going on with Ball State and South Bend Adams grad Danny Pinter as uh, he is now going into year three with the Indianapolis Colts, believe it or not. Jake Arthur is going to join me from the Sports Illustrated website, Horseshoe Huddle. That is coming up next. Budweiser's weekday sports beat is brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend. Sports fans, it's buns for you. Tim Garland State Farm Insurance. Save money on home and auto insurance with Tim, serving both Indiana and Michigan. Call 574-232-9981. Barnabies of Mishawaka and Granger, serving our community while serving Michiana's most favorite pizza since 1978. And the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. Hunger's a story we can end. Find out how at feedindiana.org. Jake Arthur, we're going to talk some Colts coming up next on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat continues. We're, uh, what, just a few days out after the NFL draft, and, you know, everyone's been breaking down the draft and kind of the exciting time of year. Everyone's got, you know, their new allotment of players and all that kind of good stuff. And with us right now to talk about the Indianapolis Colts draft is the senior analyst from Sports Illustrated's Horseshoe Huddle and the co-host of the Horseshoe Guys podcast. We've had him on plenty of times before. Jake Arthur, how you doing, Jake? Yes, sir. I'm good. How about you? Doing great. Doing great. Good to talk to you again. And you know what? It's eight guys, I guess, the Colts drafted last weekend and I've seen a lot of the you know the post draft grades and all that kind of stuff. So if you're going to put a put a letter grade on this eight player class that the Colts were able to draft, where uh, where would you put it? Yeah, it's a nice little class. I, I see exactly what they were trying to do with it. Um I really don't have any gripes. I uh, I I don't have much reason not to give them I'll say an A minus. Um only reason I don't give them anything higher is cuz they they did take some some guys who are more, I don't know if you want to say developmental, but they're just the real athletic guys from small schools or they just have a, a little bit of tailoring to their games to do. But um, they, they, they definitely chose guys that fit them very well. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, they, they went out and addressed a lot of needs with this class, starting with their only second round pick, their highest pick in the draft, Alec Pierce, the wide receiver from Cincinnati. What do you think about him? I like it even better considering they were they were able to trade back about 11 spots and still get a guy who literally was just handcrafted for Frank Reich and Chris Ballard. <laughs> uh, if you looked at a list, so they, they obviously needed receivers going into this draft, and if you looked at a list of the guys who were available, Alex Pierce was, had to be one of the, the top most realistic options on the board, if not the top one. 
Um, he, he fits them very well. He, he's got great size and length and speed, and they really like guys who can be really tough at the point of attack, uh, catch those contested balls, and especially having Matt Ryan now at quarterback. Uh, from what I've seen of, of his play recently, he will, he'll trust his guys to go up and win those 50-50 balls. Uh, so Pierce is perfect for that. Yeah, so it feels like, especially with just where you know where they are with the roster right now, it would seem like Pierce is going to have a, a chance to step in and be a contributor right away. Yeah, I, I think so. It's It was definitely their biggest need going into the draft. They really lacked depth behind uh, Michael Pittman Jr., uh, T.Y. Hilton's still not there. We don't know if he will be. Um, Zach Pascal left. You know, that was two of the top three guys last year. And, you know, you, you consider Paris Campbell, it, it's hard to rely on him. So behind Michael Pittman, you're looking at, you know, Ashton Doolin, Mike Strawn, uh, Campbell, of, of course, uh, Des Patman. So Pierce, if he has a good summer, I mean, he could be wide receiver two or three going into the season. Do you expect that, you know, you talked about T.Y. Hilton, and I heard in the press conference they were asked about him, and he's someone they're still considering, but do you expect them to kind of go out and maybe still try to, you know, find a veteran in what's left of the free agent pool out there? I could see him doing it. I think there's still room for it because they didn't, they didn't load up at receiver in the draft, right. so there is still room for a receiver. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go for someone like Julio Jones or Jarvis Landry um, just because you've got some young athletic guys who you want to give snaps to so that they can develop. And having someone like Matt Ryan definitely kind of helps speed that up, whereas Carson Wentz, he's not, he's not a quarterback that's going to help your receivers develop. Um, so someone who's a real, uh, maybe not, you can't really call T.Y. too reliable anymore just because of how much he's banged up, uh, but just a, a veteran who has proven that they can be good and who would take a, a cheap contract, you know, maybe $3 million or so. Um, just someone who you can put out there to, to catch passes and move the chains. You don't really need anyone spectacular. Jake Arthur is with us from the Indianapolis Colts Sports Illustrated website, Horseshoe Huddle. So they ended up with three third-round picks as well, and, and I know, you know, everyone seems to be uh, pretty excited about Jelani Woods what'd you think about that pick the big six foot seven tight end from Virginia yeah that, that was basically it's it felt like them getting a younger version of Mo Alley Cox <laughs> who already had experience playing football right, uh, right. Mo Alley Cox of course was famously a basketball player when the Colts picked him up uh, but no Woods is is a, a real tough real big athletic guy uh, he was a quarterback when he got to Oklahoma State and when he transferred to Virginia, you know, they, they, they had converted him to tight end still when he was at Oklahoma State. Uh, but by the time he got to Virginia, he was a, a pretty good player. Um, so that, that's an exciting move for them. They're, they're very excited to get him. Uh, so that's, it's, very, it's very interesting because just like receivers, they need a tight end as well. Uh, those guys can take a while to develop. Uh, we saw with Kylan Granson last year, it was kind of slow. Uh, but again, Matt Ryan having a guy like that who can make contested catches, uh, they could probably find a small role for Woods uh, going into the season. Well, and then they they get you know a handful of other guys after that, a couple third rounders, a fifth round pick, a couple of the sixth, a couple in the seventh. Any of those guys maybe 
have any intrigue for you? You know, of the of the rest of their haul in the draft. Yeah, among the day three guys, one of them who I definitely think is a sleeper has a, a chance to do some things is Curtis Brooks, uh, defensive tackle from Cincinnati. Uh, that defense, of course, was just loaded with NFL talent. That team mm-hmm. in general was great, a college football playoff team. I think their defense was 10th overall. And he was one of its best players. Uh, I think seven and a half sacks and 13 tackles for loss. Uh, first team all-conference, uh, kind of a late bloomer. Uh, got overlooked a little bit because I think he's 24 and he's not. he doesn't have prototypical size for any defensive line position kind of one of those tweeners uh but the the Colts really like what he did he's another really athletic guy um so I think he's got I think he's got the potential to do some things he's he's really motivated too uh he was not happy to be as be picked as late as he was so definitely coming in with a chip on his shoulder okay interesting well you know Jack Cohn there were a lot of people who thought that he was going to end up being drafted I don't think anyone probably would have been saying that a year ago but after what he did in his one season at Notre Dame he, he turned himself at least into you know some kind of commodity but he ends up going undrafted uh, the Colts get him as a free agent signee D- does he feel like a guy who's got a realistic chance maybe to uh, to stick down there in Indy uh, I could see Cone maybe getting on the practice squad uh, I, I don't think they're going to carry many quarterbacks they'll have ryan of course and i, I think sam ellinger will remain the backup okay uh they, they really like what he provides uh but cone i think cone should be a nice little you know summer quarterback for them get help get them through the preseason and and should do well in training camp you know he's he's a real smart guy obviously we'll we'll get the ball where it's supposed to go and we'll kind of take what the defense gives them um he's not He's not really the Frank Reich prototype quarterback, uh, so I don't really see him having a, a big role in necessarily making the roster. Uh, but one thing they definitely appreciated about Ellinger last year, even as a rookie, was how quickly he absorbed the playbook and just not making big mistakes and kind of just getting the offense in the place it needed to be. And I could, I could see that from Cone. He's definitely not as as mobile as, as Ellinger was, but I could see Cone – I, I can see him growing on the on the uh, offensive coaches. I'm curious your thoughts and and if you have kind of some insight on maybe what their thoughts were on Sam Howell, the quarterback from from North Carolina, because obviously he ended up slipping. He ended, he slipped farther than I thought he was going to slip. So I, they had some chances in that middle of the you know middle of the draft because they obviously bring in another veteran in Matt Ryan. You know, they wouldn't have been spending a high draft pick. What are your thoughts on him? And, you know, again, maybe if, if you have any insight into what their thoughts were on him going in. Yeah, so uh, they visited with uh, some of the top quarterbacks a week or two before the draft, and Howell was one of them. Uh, they also met with uh, Desmond Ritter and even Malik Willis. Um, I don't think any of us thought Willis would fall as far as he did, but yeah. apparently maybe the Colts thought it was a possibility. Um, I thought once we got into the mid-rounds that it might be a little more possible that we see Howell go to the Colts uh, just because they could use a developmental guy to go behind Matt Ryan. You know, maybe maybe in a few years have, have someone you would throw out there as the starter. Um, kind of like with what, what they did with Jacob Eason uh, a couple years ago. Right. 
someone who was widely discussed as a day two pick that fell to the fourth round. I, I kind of felt like that to me. Um, but ultimately, they decided to keep going for, for some athletic playmakers. Well, I wanted to ask you about Danny Pinter as well. Of course, our local guy here went to Adams High School here in South Bend, the Ball State guy as well. He's He's been there in a reserve role the last couple of years and going into year three now, which is pretty amazing. But I, I saw something, you know, what, maybe a week or so before the draft about how you know, he could end up being a starter this season. Do you think that's a realistic possibility for Danny Pinter? Yeah, honestly, I think if the season started tomorrow, he probably would be their starting right guard. Um, the the Colts lost both Mark Glowinski and Chris Reed in free agency. Uh, that that was their two starting right guards last season. Uh, Reed kind of overtook Glowinski at one point, and then Glowinski earned his job back. Uh, but they liked both of those guys. Uh, and I think this was probably their plan for Pinter. Uh, right guard has kind of been the weak link of the line for the last couple years, um, d- discounting left tackle that they've kind of had to scramble and, and throw something together there. Uh, but right guard is, is probably the spot you could put a put a magnifying glass on and say this is probably the most interchangeable spot on their line. Uh, but Pinter has developed nicely the last two years as the backup center. Uh, Ryan Kelly hasn't always had the cleanest bill of health, uh, so Pinner has has gotten some playing time and has started a little bit, and he's he's done very well. He sh- he basically showed what he did at Ball State. Uh, he's very used to change and adapting quickly, and that's what he did uh, with has done with the Colts so far in two years. And yeah, I uh, I think uh, probably the biggest reason they haven't gone out and signed a new starting right guard is because they knew they had Pinter. Um, now I will say they, they drafted Bernard Ryman right. in the third round. Uh, I think the hope is that he could earn the left tackle spot at some point, but Chris Ballard did say they're, they're just going to put the best five guys out there. However, that looks. And so, uh, that, that could, that could mean Ryman takes over right guard. We don't know yet. We'll see. But I, I definitely think Pinter would get the nod if they had to play a game this week. Yeah, and it's interesting. I I saw in in Ryman's background information that, like Danny Pinter, he's a guy who had played tight end and end up moving to tackle in college. Of course, he's at Central Michigan, but uh, you know, pretty good size, six six, and what a little over three hundred pounds, I think. So maybe maybe a guy you know they're looking at to see what spot fits the best kind of thing for him as they go through their camps. Yeah, exactly. And we, we got to talk to some of the guys in the scouting department after the draft. And I, I kind of brought that up to Kevin Rogers, their director of uh, pro personnel, player personnel. I, I compared Ryman to Pinter. You know, they're, they're guys who are very used to change. They, they haven't, you know, started 40 games in one spot. So they're used to being asked to do new things and adapting quickly. Um, so I, I, I think, I honestly, I, I think, they probably felt pretty good taking Ryman in in small part because of the success they've seen with Danny Pinter. One final question for you. Obviously they go out and get Matt Ryan. They make that trade for him after they traded Carson Wentz to Washington. What's, what's the general feel down there in Indy about Matt Ryan compared, you know, making that move to get Ryan compared to the move that they made when they gave up the first round pick to get Wentz a year ago. Oh, much, much, much better. <laughs> uh, I, I think everyone is, is much more comfortable with this move. 
Um, I've heard several times people say that it's it's a lot like when the Colts had uh, Philip Rivers at quarterback. Okay. Um, you know that's that's a veteran guy that can spread the ball around. He'll take the layups. He's not just trying to play hero ball. Yeah. You know, he, he's he's not going to tank the offense. But at the same time, he's just a born leader. He's an extension of the coaching staff. And they they have a young group of pass catchers with their receivers and tight ends that they really think Ryan is going to help them develop. All right, very good. And, of course, Sports Radio 960 AM is your home for the Indianapolis Colts. Senior analyst Jake Arthur from Sports Illustrated's Horseshoe Huddle and the co-host of the Horseshoe Guys podcast. I imagine you've got a lot of uh, draft coverage going on right now at the Horseshoe Huddle, Jake. Oh yeah, that's that's all I've been doing on stop, and the rest of the guys are throwing stuff in there as well. I uh, I've been working from home the last two years, but I feel like the most time I've spent away from the house was during the draft at the Colts facility. <laughs> that was a lot of work. I can imagine. I can imagine. Jake Arthur, yep. check out all his stuff at Sports Illustrated's Horseshoe Huddle site, and uh, also to have a listen to the Horseshoe Guys podcast. Jake, appreciate it as always. Great stuff from you. As always, it's great to talk to you and uh, look forward to, to talking to you again maybe around the time training camp rolls around or so. Absolutely. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me back. Yep, absolutely. Take care, Jake. Jake Arthur from, again, the Horseshoe Huddle, the Sports Illustrated website. We're going to take a timeout. We've got more Budweiser's weekday sports beat coming up. A lot of topics coming up in rapid fire in the 6 o'clock hour as well. It's Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Rolling on with Budweiser's weekday sports beat. White Sox trying to get back into things right now. Starting to click a little bit since that losing streak. You know, they were swept three games by the Indians, swept in three games by Minnesota. They went on, I'm sorry, the Guardians. First of many slip-ups, I'm sure. They lost two of three to Kansas City. Then they took two of four from the Angels. And uh, they've now won three out of their last four after beating the Cubs last night in the uh, opener of the Crosstown Series. A little different this year. I, you know, they've split it up before, but because of the fact that their Major League Baseball is playing so many more interleague games now, it'll be two games at Wrigley, two games on the south side at the end of the month. Uh, so they won 3-1 to one last night, home run from Tim Anderson. And, uh, you know, again, they've won three out of four now. You look at the AL Central standings. Now they're four and a half back. They're three games under five hundred, but they're tied for second with Cleveland. I, I think the big thing for them is just get healthy, work for, you know, toward the end of the month or so, get healthy, be somewhere around five hundred, and have a chance to start making a move. I know a lot of people are disgruntled with Dallas Keuchel right now. He has not been pitching that well, but you know, he's a veteran and and I, I don't know where else they're going to go if uh if they don't have Dallas Keuchel. For the for the Cubs, they were supposed to have Drew Smiley start last night, but they put the lefty on the bereavement list before the game, so they broke it up as a bullpen game and ended up using five different pitchers, including Scott Efros, who started, uh, gave up a couple of hits in an inning and a third. No earned runs he gave up, but Keegan Thompson, 
uh, came in and gave up an earned run. They only gave up, of the three runs they gave up, only one of them was earned. Keegan Thompson went three and two-thirds, and then Rucker, Givens, and Martin after that. And for the White Sox, Liam Hendricks with the save. He's already got six saves this season, and uh, that's a team that has ten wins. <laughs> so Liam Hendricks doing his job anyway. But they'll play again tonight at Wrigley Field, the uh, the Cubs and the White Sox. And again, then after tonight, they won't play again until they meet at uh, the end of the month, May 28th and 29th. Hopefully the weather's better than last night. But, man, I mean, it's you know it's been like this for everybody now. You know, we had all the rain here in South Bend yesterday. They got it last night in Chicago. Fortunately, it didn't rain earlier today here in South Bend because we had a South Bend Cubs, uh, one of the early morning games with all the students and stuff out there at Four Winds Field with Brennan and Max bringing you the call as uh, the South Bend Cubs picked up the victory. A lot of matinee games across Major League Baseball today. I haven't looked closely at the schedules, but don't know if maybe there are just a lot of these two-game series in the middle of the week like the Cubs and White Sox are playing right now because typically Thursday is the more traditional getaway day afternoon games, but you've got a lot of uh, Wednesday afternoon games going on across Major League Baseball today. Going to take a timeout. Sports Center update coming up. A lot of different topics to get to in the second hour of the show when Jess joins me for Rapid Fire when uh, we continue with Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. You're listening to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat with Sean Styers. On Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. Who wants to have some fun? Rapid Fire starts now on Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. And now your host, Sean Styers. Along with Jesse Styers, tonight's Wednesday Rapid Fire on. Budweiser's weekday sports beat. We have a lot of things to get to this evening, my friend. So uh, let's jump right Lots into it. Lots of topics. There are. I mean, there are many topics today, and I, you know, I don't know how uh, how deep we're going to go on this first one. So we'll see. Um, there's been a lot of transfer portal and NIL controversy going on these last few days in the wake of everything that went down with Pittsburgh. Wide receiver Jordan Addison allegedly being offered $3 million to transfer to USC before he was even in the transfer portal. So let's hear what uh, Desmond Howard from ESPN has to say about this. Well, Laura, I was just talking to a friend of mine before I came out here for the draft, and I said, I'm just not a fan of the trajectory of college football right now. I do not like where it's headed. Now, I've been pounding the table for guys to get NIL NIL money because I yes. think they deserve it. You need to get paid for your name, image, and likeness. There's no doubt about that. But when you just place it in our lap with no real rules, no real regulations, and say, here, have at it, then it becomes the wild, wild west. So it's a double-edged sword. They should get paid. They should be able to transfer. Right. Coaches do it all the time. Right. We have coaches who leave teams when they can still make a, the playoff and they leave teams. They jump right. ship. So right. if coaches should, can do it, 
players should be able to do it too. But it needs to be some sort of rules or regulations behind it. And to me, that has been the biggest problem. You hate to see this for the fans more than anything. Yeah. yeah a guy like All right, so there you go. That is Desmond Howard on ESPN talking about this. So, Jesse, you know, if you want some, you know, some thoughts on what he said or what changes you would make to the transfer portal and or NIL system. Surprisingly, uh, I, I agreed a lot with what Desmond Howard was saying here. I, I do think that athletes should be able to capitalize off their likeness and image. Uh, and and when, when we see so many coaches these days be able to bounce out at the drop of a hat, uh, and I think he was referencing Brian Kelly in that situation. Did you like that little shot there? <laughs> <laughs> he, can't, he can't help himself when he can throw jabs at Notre Dame. That's right. Well, it was more um, Brian yeah. Kelly than Notre Dame, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I just think, you know, if, if coaches are allowed to leave on a, on a you know, a drop of a hat and they're still getting paid by other schools and they're making, you know, X amount in salary, I, I'm agreeing with what he's saying. And I do agree that the current landscape of the NAL in, in college sports is like the wild, wild west. There needs to be more rules and regulation when it comes to the NIL framework. Part of me thinks that the NCAA kind of did this on purpose because they're like, hey, this is what everyone wanted. You guys have all been complaining about, you know, these guys need to make money. Now, here it is. Go figure it out. We're not <laughs> going to set any groundwork. We're not going to set any rules. We're going to try to set this almost like ticking time bomb. That's just my opinion. Um, but that's just, you know, I, I think that's kind of part of it. But I would install some basic ground rules. And I think that the, these first couple ones would solve a lot of the issues. There, can, there would be, if I was in charge, there can be no talks of NIL until a player is enrolled and steps foot on campus. NIL cannot be discussed with transfer students until the player is enrolled and steps foot on campus. The amount a player can make from NIL should be capped at X amount. I know that's controversial. Um, I'm not sure what that amount would be, but it could be determined, and it could be determined to be a significant amount of dollars. You know, I think if a guy is capped at making $4 million in college, that's a pretty good deal. Um, that, and I think that there should be no limit to services that an NIL can offer or provide uh, when it comes to non-monetary things. For example, free food, free clothes, uh, being able to go to a golf course whenever you want, etc. I think players can make as many NIL deals as they want as long as it does not exceed the maximum amount of money that I just kind of discussed earlier. I don't know what that amount would be, but as long as you don't exceed that, I think you should be able to have as many deals as you want. Um, and last and most important, players and coaches should face suspensions if found that NIL deals were discussed and agreed upon before the student is enrolled and stepped foot on campus. So I don't have many rules, but I think that my main rule would solve a lot of the issues. And that one being, you can't discuss NIL until the player is enrolled and actually on campus. Right. So that's after you've got a commitment, after they've signed on the dotted line and all that stuff. I mean, that is showing up for classes. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a good point, too. Or or, you know, like at Notre Dame, they go to summer school. I don't know that every college, you know, university makes them go to summer school, you know, like as freshmen before they enroll, before, you know, training camp, fall camp and all that kind of stuff. But at the very least, you know, so if the, if they're my point is if they're not taking summer school before their you know before their school even you know before training camp at least you know until they're you know on campus at training camp I get you know is my is my point so because I don't I, that's not necessarily a uniform thing I don't think but I, I like I like the intention that you're talking about I I think that that is probably the easiest way to do it.
you know, but the other side of that is how do you how do you keep them honest? Because you know, you know, like all the all these under the table things are taking place anyway, and you know, barring FBI investigations and getting wiretaps and phone taps and all this different kind of stuff, like how do you how do you prove that some of this stuff is is taking place? You know, like this particular thing with Jordan Addison, it is just crazy how it got out there in the open, and we're talking about $3 million. But I agree with what you're saying, though. The, the, the easiest rule that the NCAA could make is that first one that you said. No NIL talk until after the player has signed his – at least until after they've signed their letter of intent. But there is still wiggle room, I, I guess, you know, like you're saying, right? Like, like make sure they're actually on campus in class or, or going – to practices. That just seems like the easiest one. In terms of the transfer portal, because that plays into this as well, because we're essentially talking about these players as free agents, you know, like Jordan Addison. One, you know, along with what you're talking about, NIL in terms of transfer portal, that your rule would solve some of that as well, though. You know, like that would eliminate any of this stuff going on with Jordan Addison, because even if, you know, you've already gone to a school, now you're in the transfer portal, you're still, you know, what you're saying is you would not be able, you know, not be allowed to talk NIL type inducements until that player is already, you know, agreed to transfer to your school. So you cannot use the NIL dollars as an inducement to get, you know, to, to go to a school. But again, how you prove that stuff is or isn't taking place I think that that would you know end up being tough you know unless unless a kid is you know wearing a wire and <laughs> and recording conversations but you know the other thing that's going to be proposed by college football coaches in terms of the transfer portal itself is rather than just having wide open year-round ability to enter the transfer portal you do it in a couple of small windows like you do it right after the season ends and you do it right after spring football ends, you know, like mid-April to the end of April, somewhere around there. And then, you you know, you have it open for a couple of weeks where they can enter the portal at those times, and that's it. You know, I really – and I think that that is probably a good idea, you know, in those windows because otherwise, you know, again, it is just like Jordan Addison had not played since the end of December. Nearly four months had passed. He's not in the transfer portal. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff comes up with the talk about USC. And there were some talks about Alabama as well. So four months go by. Nothing has taken place. And then all of a sudden, boom, all this stuff explodes. And here he is in the transfer portal. I think you need to have a couple of windows. Close it down so that it's not just wide open year-round. And I think that that would at least help you know, limit some of this stuff as well. What do you think? Yeah, and like you said, how do you how do you uh, you know monitor? Yes, you can set a rule of hey, you can't talk about these things until said athlete is enrolled. But I think that's why, like I was saying, you have to implement a, a very very severe punishment to start. You know, guys yeah. can miss half a season if they're caught. You know, talking to recruiters or coaches or things like that um, before enrolled in campus. So I do think that if you set a very high 
or bar for, you know, what these punishments are going to be. And especially for the coaches, because if you start punishing yeah. coaches and say that they can't coach for, you know, a fourth of the season after one your first offense, and then you can't coach for half this season after your second offense, and then, you know, your third offense, you might be facing possible expulsion from NCAA-level coaching. So I think if you set these bars of punishments high in the beginning and you set it as, like we were saying, you can't talk to these players or athletes until they become enrolled, I think that you would see these coaches and players following the guidelines because no one wants to get suspended and no one wants to potentially be expelled uh, from the NCAA level. Yeah, I think the punishment, you know, punishing the head coach if there are any violations is – just like you see, you know, like you start off with a one game suspension or something like that. It's like, okay, you get caught doing this. It's one game. Second time, it's half the season. Third time, you know, maybe, maybe you get suspended for a whole season, you know, similar to what happened with Sean Payton in the NFL a few years back with, with all that stuff. So, yeah, I think, I think that you've got to, you know, point it back on the coaches, you know, to keep them, to keep them in check and, and make sure that they're the ones policing this whole thing. So I, I think that, you know, good ideas, but we're talking about NCAA policy, essentially. So, I don't know, you know, because you started off by saying, well, the NCAA said, you know, we'll just do this and, and put it on the schools and whatever. You know, their their hand was forced on this. And the reason the reason this is such a sham system and, and is blown up like this is because the NCAA didn't want to enact this in the first place. And they were basically forced to do this as the different states you know, came up with their with their own laws and enforced the NCAA's hands, and this is where we are. They buried their head in the sand. They were more than willing to take the billions and billions of dollars from TV networks to televise their football and basketball games. They never wanted the players to have anything, and now all of college athletics is in the place they're in less than a year after NIL was enacted because of the inaction to begin with by the NCAA. So Mark Emmert cannot go soon enough. I just hope that they find somebody who's actually a leader to take that place when it's all said and done. All right, let's shift back to the NFL draft a little bit, just coming out of NFL draft weekend. Jess, do you buy or sell players who don't get picked in the NFL draft being allowed to return to school and play? I buy that college athletes, no matter the sport, should be allowed to return to school if they're not drafted in their respective sports. Uh, the main thing I look at is the opportunity to further their education and maybe even complete their degree if they aren't drafted. You look at majority um, of NFL uh, draft eligible players, these guys have to be at least a junior. So they've already gone through at least two to three years uh, of school. So being able to, to, to deny them the opportunity to re return back and potentially you know, finish their degree is first and foremost uh, for me. And I just don't think that that should be voided because they were not drafted. And then furthermore, I believe that they should be able to continue on athletically as well. These athletes are essentially taking a risk and believing scouts who develop draft grades for them and feed them information on where they could potentially, you know, be drafted or projected to be picked. And at the end of the day, these scouts aren't the ones making the final decision in the war rooms. I think you should be able to still, you know, I still think that you should uh, meet requirements to declare yourself for the draft. Um, but if you aren't drafted, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be double punished. Essentially, uh, I, I do think that you should be able to return back to school um, and complete your degree uh, for, first and foremost. But then also that you should be able to continue on athletically and potentially develop yourself into a draft pick uh, in the next draft cycle. Well, they've all got the ability to return to school just to return to school if that's what they want to. 
you know, it's the playing side of this. Um, I, I, I guess the scholarship too. I, I, I thought of it in that aspect. Like, right. If your scholarship is negated, then how are you essentially paying for school after that? Well, I, you know, and again, even if you declare for the draft, I, I think most schools are going to honor your scholarship. The bigger thing again is, you know, the, the playing because like using Kevin Austin as the example, because he goes undrafted. And so he ends up signing as a free agent, which means he's making, considerably less money than if he was drafted especially like in the first three rounds of the draft or the first couple of rounds of the draft as opposed to being a an undrafted free agent he's going to get you know like two hundred and fifty thousand bucks guaranteed I think from the Jacksonville Jaguars nothing to sneeze at you know from an average person's point of view but from an, a professional athlete's point of view it is not great compared to the tens of millions of dollars the first round guys are going to get and even you know, a few million bucks that the second and third round guys are going to end up getting. But I think the bigger thing for these players, what what makes it tough to say, well, if you go in the draft, you can return to school and still play the next year if you don't get drafted. What makes it tough is, you know, all this stuff that we're talking about because, you know, between transfer portal and everything else, but you've also got teams who are coming out of spring practice, getting their rosters figured out. They've got incoming freshmen the next year, they're trying to get their rosters set. You know, like Notre Dame, and with the situation they're in, you would think that, like, hey, you know, they'd they'd welcome a guy like Kevin Austin. You know, again, just using that as an example, they'd welcome him back with open arms because of the fact that the wide receiver room is so depleted. But I I, I just I think it is too tough to get through the end of May, and teams have just finished. You know, again, their their spring practice and all these different things going through April and then just say you can come back if you don't get drafted because, you know, again, like the teams themselves, I think in some cases have moved on. It's always going to be good for the players. I think the better, you know, the better thing for the players in a, in a lot of these situations is how you just, you were talking about taking information from scouts and that you've got to give better consideration to the feedback you're getting because I just don't think that Kevin Austin was given information that would have told him he was going to be a first or second round draft pick because it's basically, you know, that kind of grade or return to school. And I just don't think that he was told he was going to be picked that high, you know, and, you know, again, I'm just using him as an example. There are plenty of other guys like that. I, I just, I think it's tough because, it's probably going to be a better situation for the player than maybe some of these teams because of the way they've got to get their rosters set going forward to be able to take these guys back. So I just, you know, like I like the NBA draft process better where these guys can enter their name, go through the pre-draft process, be evaluated, do all this stuff. Like if there was a way to do that for NFL players, like coming out of the combine, get a true evaluation of where they thought they were going to be. I think that that makes more sense, but you know, I, I think it's, I just, I think it's a lot tougher with football to be able to do that. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I really do like the NBA draft process. Uh, you know, if you, if you go in, you put your name in the hat and then, you know, you get the evaluation and it's not quite where you think you should be. And, you know, you, you think you might have better chances after another year Then yeah, that, that would be the, the way to do it. But then it's like you were saying, how do you implement it at a much larger scale? Uh, with, with the college football landscape. Right. 
We're going to take a timeout when we come back. More Budweiser's weekday sports beat and rapid fire on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Budweiser's weekday sports beat and rapid fire continue on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT with Jesse Styers. Sean Styers, just the NFL announced five international games today for the upcoming season. And that will include the first ever NFL game in Germany. My question is, are you in or out on the uh, international NFL games? I am definitely an in for the NFL continuing to play and expand games internationally. The main reason I am all for it is because it allows the game to gain more traction and interest in more parts of the world. Ideally, it would be awesome to see football grow to the point where countries could develop pools of players um, that could be recruited by college teams and then potentially another pool of players who could be draft eligible, you know, based off of their skill sets or going through a combine kind of held more regionally. Um, From the fan perspective, they're just, you know, these are just another set of games, in my opinion. It doesn't matter where they're being played at. For me, as long as they're getting played, I think the NFL needs to focus more on setting good matchups internationally and i think that's been the (laughs) issue to to why these games maybe lack interest or you know why some people might be opposed to them is because yeah i this just for an example recently i remember like the jaguars playing the giants at like 8 a.m over in london it's like who wants to get up and watch that crappy matchup i think oftentimes we see these low caliber teams match up in these games so so the fan interest isn't as high i wouldn't mind waking up at 6 a.m on a sunday to watch a game if it involved, you know, a matchup between some of the top-level teams in the NFL. Uh, similarly, I wouldn't even care for if it were a Cowboys game. I'd still get up and watch it just like every other game. So I guess what I'm saying is I like it in the fact that it, it is expanding uh, football to more countries. It is expanding the brand of the NFL. What I think the issue is is they, they, they want to put these crappy matchups over there and then wonder why there isn't as much interest as what they thought there would be. Yeah, I mean, really, that's a good point because, like, when you look at, you've okay, you've got Tampa Bay, Seattle. Well, a year ago that would have been an interesting matchup, but now that that Russell Wilson is not in Seattle, you know, you don't have Russell Wilson and Tom Brady, so that's not as interesting. you got the Saints and the Vikings. Okay, Kirk Cousins, and who's going to be the quarterback for the Saints? you got the Packers and the Giants which could end up being the best matchup of the whole thing because then, you know, again, they keep, you know, they've they've got the long history of sending Jacksonville over there. They're taking on the Broncos, and then the Mexico City game is Arizona-San Francisco, and that's more going to be, you know, in, uh, you know, our time zone. So you're probably talking about potentially a primetime game for that one. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, you look at those – those four matchups that are going to be taking place in Europe, those are all going to be 9.30 a.m. games. They're not great matchups. I guess my answer to this is I used to be more out on these because I didn't like the fact that you know a, a team was going to have to give up a home game to go play in Europe where their fans were not able to be there. But they've added the 17th game to the schedule, and part of you know the rationale we were given for that is, well, now you can play more international games and you don't have to worry about the you know like a a team is actually giving up a home game type of thing you know they're they're trying to float more of these games around so I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying because it does help promote the game more internationally but you're absolutely right about the matchups that's the biggest thing 
The NFL loves those 9.30 a.m. games, though, because now when you've got a 9.30 a.m. game on Sunday, you've got four windows that they're playing games in. You've got a 9.30 a.m. game. You've got a you know, 1 o'clock Eastern time game. You've got the you know, 4.15, 4.30 game. And then, of course, you've got the primetime game at 8.30. So, you know, like from the NFL standpoint, they've got four game. you know, four again, four windows. And, you know, so if you're sitting home all day on Sunday, you could be glued to your TV all day if you want to watch, you know, all these matchups from early in the morning until late at night. So I'm, I'm more in on them now, again, because of the fact that they've added the 17th game. I didn't really used to care for these, but it's a great point about getting better matchups. That's what you've got to have because they're just sending these turkey matchups overseas and, and you know but the other side of that is maybe they're saving the better matchups for the home stadiums rather than sending them overseas I don't know all right Cubs White Sox crosstown series is this week started last night one more game tonight at Wrigley Field and then later this month two games on the south side does this year's series, Jess, you're a Cubs fan, so does this year's series mean more or less considering the relatively low expectations that the Cubs have for this season? You know, high or low expectations, good or bad team, it doesn't matter to me. The series will always hold the same amount of significance, in my opinion, and that significance is always going to be at a high level. And I'll tell you why. It is a rivalry series. It is the Battle of Chicago, and the winner gets to claim the city until the next meeting. The Cubs should hate these guys, just like the White Sox <laughs> should hate them. And, 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 you know, they should get a little fire under their butts every time that they play. Like I said, this is a crosstown rivalry uh, for a reason. Playing, I, I'll, I'll tell you what hurts the series and, and its significance and, you know, maybe kind of, you know, takes my level of enthusiasm down a little bit is playing this series at the beginning of May and starting it on a Tuesday night. I mean, last night's game looked horrible. It was rainy. Yeah. It was cold. It was a Tuesday night in the in the beginning of May. I mean, come on. How idiotic is that? The Crosstown series needs to be played in the middle of the summer on a beautiful Chicago summer day during a weekend series. This involves fans more and in, and in turn would intensify the series and probably the you know the amount of some maybe bleacher fights that we see and i think it would i think it would incentivize some of these guys to play a little bit harder when you have a good crowd turnout on a nice summer day i mean no that is an excellent point and i was thinking the same thing it's like why are they playing this these games on a freaking tuesday and wednesday and you know the, the the weather aspect now you can't control the weather but you know in chicago in early may You've got a better chance for the weather to be crappier than than good, and exactly, and and you know the fact that they split these up into a you know two two game series rather than than j just playing the full thing on a weekend, you know, like why not just do a four game weekend series for that matter? Now, you know, I know they're they're playing more interleague games and all that different stuff, but like you're playing in the same city, you could you could go back and forth every other game in the series you know it could have been like you know night one you're at Wrigley Field next night you're uh, at the south side at guaranteed rate the next night you're you know you're back at Wrigley Field if you wanted to or just play two and two whatever you wanted to do but like you said these games should be played at, at the earliest in late May when they're playing these other two games or in June in the summer when everyone has a chance to go out actually enjoy some good weather not in the middle of the week play them on the weekend 
when there's more attention being paid to baseball. Play them in the weekend in summer, like you said, when there's more attention being paid to baseball. That's what I don't get. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's like, especially from a fan standpoint, there, there's no reason. You know, again, it's like it's baseball. So even if you're the Cubs and you're not expecting to have a great season, this is a series that you can get up for because anyone can win a series at any given point during the season. So, Especially a rivalry series. You yeah. know, there, you might be a crap team, but at least you have some enthusiasm to kick the team's butt in, in the same city as you. And it's like, come on, summer, school isn't even out yet, and we're trying to play <laughs> these games on a Tuesday night, and we wonder why there's no one in attendance. It's, yeah. just, it's just crappy for the rivalry. I think it, it hurts the rivalry. Um, yeah, I, I just can't really say enough about how much – I despise this series being in the middle of, you know, the beginning of May uh, on a random Tuesday night. Yeah, they, these these things, it, it's one thing if you're going to play interleague baseball all season long, which they've decided they are doing now. But you can't treat these special series like that, you know, because like the, the, the Royals and Cardinals are playing this week as well. It's, you know, that's like you've got one side of Missouri. Whoa, one side of Missouri. And the other side of Missouri, you you can't treat the special series like that, like this. You've got to, they've got to be on the weekend when everybody can see them. You know whether it's you know this one or Yankees Mets, whatever it happens to be. You've you've got you, you you've got to kind of put them up a little bit more on a pedestal, I think. Yeah, just just kind of like off, not off topic, maybe different avenue about this is I think that series like these should hold more precedence uh, it maybe, you know, when it comes down to, you know, maybe determining some sort. It, the MLB is trying to bring excitement to the game and find ways to kind of tweak things. I think the winner of this series uh, should ultimately have some sort of contribution to maybe like, uh, you know, World Series home field advantage. Which, which league won more, you know, interleague rivalries. I just think that they could do more to incentivize these rivalries having more significance. Now you might be going. Now you might at. be going a little too far. You might be stepping. <laughs> you might be stepping too far with that one. But I see where you're going. Like you know, because they're rivalries, you try to give some kind of, you know, incentive there to win. But right, I'd have right. to. I'd have to think about that to see like what the incentive would be. I don't know about playoff home field and all that. I was just throwing things out. You know, <laughs> first thing that came to my mind. I got gotcha. Let's do one more baseball topic before we take a break. Alex Rodriguez proposed a few different things that he would change about baseball during his K-Rod broadcast Sunday night on ESPN2. One of them, lower the strike zone and widen the strike zone at the same time. So he's saying, you know, remove the high strike and go lower and wider. He says he would make home plate 21 inches instead of the current 17 inches because he thinks it would induce more contact. What do you think about the idea? Alex Rodriguez says a lot of stupid things, <laughs> but this has to be up there on the list of his very stupid things. The game right now is lacking offense, and the MLB is trying to do more things that would bring more action to the game. We talked about this last week. They want to bring in second base you know, to, to incentivize more runs, more stealing, more, you know, more activeness on the bases. And, and this proposal is 100% counterproductive to creating more offense. And, and what surprised me the most is that A-Rod is one of the greatest hitters of all time. 
yet he wants to make the game harder on the batters. This is only gonna this would only make the game harder on batters. I just think he wants to preserve some of his records as long as he can so no one can catch him. So let's throw four inches out on the plate and make it harder for guys to get more home runs and get more hits and more RBIs. I, you know, it, it's already hard enough for guys to hit uh, pitchers who can paint 95 on the corners with their fastballs. Then you throw in, you know, paint in the corners with wipeout sliders and, and, and change up. And it becomes nearly impossible already as is. If the plate expanded four more inches, it's just that much harder for the players to cover the plate. Exactly. You would see more strikeouts. You would you and even less runs produced, less guys on bases. And on top of that, you know, when umpires miss pitches one to two inches off the plate as is and call them strikes, now the batter is expected to clear nearly cover yeah. a half a foot more of space because you got to add on the the factor of error with umpires. So you got four inches of the plate expansion, you get another one to two inches of umpires missing calls. We're talking about nearly a half a foot that the batter is now expected to cover. You know, if anything, the plate should shrink by an inch, then maybe we would see guys swinging at more pitches and putting the ball in play. But to expand it four inches is just so idiotic. And like I said, it just really surprises me because A-Rod made his money on, on, on the hitter that he was. So to make the game harder for hitters is really baffling for me. Yeah, for a guy who, you know, supposedly knows so much about the game, to actually go on TV and say this publicly is baffling to me because of everything that you said. So now he thinks that that making hitters, you know, basically cover what, about twenty eight inches by the time it's all said and done. Just chase more pitches, is yeah, what you say. That's exactly right. All you're doing is widening the strike zone for pitchers. And like if you have Angel Hernandez behind the plate, then all of a sudden you're you know, you're covering like you, you know what? Maybe a foot. Yeah, yeah. I mean like head to toe as well as like, you know, two feet across the plate, two two plus feet you know, with 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 a twenty one inch plate plus a couple of inches off the plate, it is just it is just ridiculous. I, I don't see how he thinks that this is going to induce more contact. I agree with what you're saying. If anything, take a half inch off each side of the plate. You know, just you know, make it a sixteen inch plate instead. Start with that, and then you know, start taking away the top of the strike zone. I have no problem with lowering it to make the pitchers pitch into you know a smaller area but I, I think it's crazy to think that by widening the plate you're going to induce more offense but that's Alex Rodriguez for you take a final time out and then back with uh, a couple more questions on rapid fire on Budweiser's weekday sports beat winding down Budweiser's weekday sports beat with Jesse Styers, Sean Styers. got a couple more questions to go here in rapid fire, fill in the blank. It's blank that Arizona wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins will be suspended for the first six games of the season after a positive PED test result. And he says he doesn't know how the substance got into his system. You know, these are always the funniest to me. It is absolutely naive of DeAndre Hopkins to sit there and say that he doesn't know how the substance got into his system. DeAndre Hopkins is a grown man and has to monitor slash know what is you know what is being put into his body even if he is the one not directly putting it into his body you know uh, furthermore it's even more naive to make a statement like that when everyone knows you are coming off a of surgery and trying to recover as quickly as possible it, it is not by random chance that peds were found in, in his in his body as he's trying to make a recover from a significant injury 
I think these guys make themselves look even more stupid or foolish when they sit there and try to make claims like this. And it also yep. hurts the guys who have, who have, you know, who, who there's potential. There's always some, I'm not saying that everyone is always lying, but it hurts people like Deandre Hopkins hurt the people who, you know, might've accidentally, or, you know, something might've, you know, happened. I don't know, but he, him making this, it's like crying wolf. It, it makes those other people uh, in the off chance of it being true. It, it, it just, just own up to your mistake, serve your games. If you think it is wrong, then make an appeal and prove your innocence. Notice in his statement how he said, oh, I, I, I plan to, you know, I intend to sit out these games, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, then I, how do you say you're going to, you know, plan to sit out these games with no appeal, yet you're saying you don't know how it got yeah, into your body at the exactly, same time. Exactly. It's just, I just wish once one of these guys would just come out and say, I messed up. I shouldn't have done it. I'll do my time. But every, it, all of these guys have this same BS excuse right off the top. Oh, I don't know how it got in my system. You're a professional athlete. You cannot tell me you don't know how it got in your system. I'm sorry. This stuff has been around. All this science is so advanced. These guys know exactly what they are or aren't putting in their system. And you talked about it. He's coming off an injury. It is, it is just beyond obvious what he was doing, you know, because a lot of these PEDs, they're not just about getting, you know, bigger, faster, stronger. They're about recovery, about trying rapid to recovery. rapid recovery from injury like this. That's what a lot of these guys do. They're, you know, they're trying to heal their bodies, get past it so they can start preparing their bodies for the next season. And it it just all you've got to do is put two and two together to figure out that is most likely what was going on with DeAndre Hopkins and and to you know to try to make any of us think that he didn't know what he was putting into his system is just beyond stupid. And it also explains why just a few days before this whole <laughs> thing was announced, the Cardinals went out and traded for for Hollywood Brown from the Ravens. They knew. Yeah, they they absolutely knew. They knew going into the draft and you know they waited until the end of the draft to announce this, you know, so that it wasn't a story during the draft. Now, here we are in DeAndre Hopkins with the same old, same old, I have no idea, you know, that, that there was anything in my system. All right, finally, Memphis forward Dylan Brooks was ejected in the first quarter of last night's playoff game against Golden State after he was whistled for a flagrant two foul that resulted in Gary Payton II with a broken elbow. What should be Brooks's punishment for this, Jess? You know, I'm going to give my opinion here, and I know these situations are always hard. And I, I, like I said, I'm just stating my opinion in this in this situation. I watched this happen in live time. I understand that Brooks should have been ejected just based on you know everything that transpired. However, I think the ejection in itself is enough of a punishment, and here's why: I don't think that Brooks conducted a move that was with malicious intent to deliberately hurt Peyton. I think what happened was Brooks did intentionally foul Peyton. There's no question about that. But it's like a lot of common NBA fouls. Guys intentionally foul someone uh, just so they don't get the easy bucket. But after that, Peyton got hung up in the air in an awkward position. And rather than you know falling on his body, 
hard. He just tried to brace himself with his arm and ultimately ended up shattering his elbow. You know, you see these things kind of happen. He went up in the air. His body got twisted in in an awkward area. And when you're floating that high up, he didn't just want to fall down, you know, maybe on his butt, on his back, on his head. So he tried to catch himself and he ultimately shattered his elbow. It's just a very, very unfortunate situation. But like I said, because of what happened, I do agree that the ejection was warranted, but I don't think that suspension is needed because I don't think that Brooks went up with the intent of deliberately hurting someone. I get what you're saying. I, I don't think that he was trying to you know, break his elbow, but it, intent is what you're talking about. He intentionally fouled him. You, you, know, you agreed that it was an intentional foul, and if you were deliberately, flagrantly, because it is a flagrant too, if you deliberately are fouling somebody, you know, no, you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you know you are fouling them with intent. And I think that, you know, after, you know, the whole Draymond Green thing in game one, Brooks was kind of going out trying to be, okay, I'm going to set the tone and be the tough guy and that kind of stuff. In a, in a playoff series like this, I think if you commit a foul against someone and he has to, you know, he has to miss any time during that series. You should have to sit for as long as the player that you intentionally fouled is out. You know, So if that's the remainder of the series, it's the remainder of the series. Then if they move on, he can come back after that. That's, that's what I think that they should do. Yeah, and it, it's hard because you know a similar situation happened with Grayson Allen against the Bulls earlier in the season with right. Alex Caruso. And when they set the bar of Grayson Allen getting suspended a couple games, it's obviously they're going to follow suit and maybe even intensify it now because we are in the playoffs. It's not just a regular season game anymore. Yep. All right, that's going to do it for tonight. Jess, have a good rest of your week. I will talk to you later. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Yep, absolutely. Budweiser's weekday sports beat is brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend, by Tim Growl State Farm Insurance, call 574-232-9981, Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, and the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. Go to feedindiana.org to find out more. We will talk to you Tomorrow night, Budweiser's weekday sports beat on WSBT South Bend. Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today.